tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boostbytaxday to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. All right, everybody, welcome back to the TNQ Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Luttrell. Every week, it's my job to fire you up, to ignite the legend inside of you, and to push you to your greatness. Join me every week as I take you into my briefing room with some of the most hard-charging people on the planet. They're going to show you how to embrace the suck of life, teach you the values of working your ass off, and charge through whatever life throws at you. This is the Team Never Quit Podcast. Podcast. So buckle up, buttercup. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Team Never Quit Podcast. We've got a great guest in store for you guys today. But like we always do, we kick things off with a Patreon question of the day. Today's Patreon question of the day is, what was the worst job you have ever had? Worst job you have ever had. Okay, worst job. Uh, I mean, I've been I've been working since I was a little kid, like like very, very young age. And I mean I've done very pretty worse jobs, but I think the worst I mean that there's no worse every every one of them was a kind of life challenge and a step, but I never looked at it to be honest as a worse and favorite. Uh but you know that regular selling stuff like a vendor, yeah. that was one of my uh, kind of if you can call it worse because that had a lot of more challenges compared to the other ones. That would be hard. Yeah. Yeah. Because you have the garment, you have the cops chasing you around and you're just a little kid and running around like <laughs> and I had my stuff, uh, you know, selling stuff. I didn't have a court. So I had this piece of, you know, cloth on the ground and then I would put my stuff. I was selling toys and stuff, but still garment has their own policies and everything. And so when you see cops, we will start chasing. I mean, we start running and they will chase us. <laughs> Sometimes you get caught, they will seize, confiscate everything you have. And I mean, that, that was all the investment you have uh, for back then for us at worth uh, like thousands of dollars because that's what, every, uh, that's what everything like we had. But, you know, I still don't call it worse, but it was not a good experience. Not your favorite. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, babe? I don't know. I don't have a worse either. That's kind of a relative term. I, I, the hardest thing I ever did was roof a house with my brother one time. It was, it was an ass whipper. That's the one I remember the worst. That's even after being in the SEAL teams and everything. 
you know, it's a hot day outside. Um, I think that mine would probably be, um, oof, you know, I haven't had too many really bad jobs, so I, I should probably skip this one. Cause I would say probably babysitting for people that, like, they said they, they'd be home by a certain time, and then they don't show up, and you're, you think you're going home at 7 o'clock, and you don't end up getting home till 10 or so. Yeah. As a teenager, you want... You're ready to be done. Yeah, you're just ready to be done. So I think that was probably the hardest. All right, Yusuf. How, how old are you, man? Uh, I'm 30, 33 and never celebrated any birthdays. That's a little hard to remember. Yeah. Well, we start celebrating them now, man, after all the hard work that you did. So when, when we talked about this, man, we're going to back it up a little bit. Uh, I know you don't want to talk too much about where you're from and the background on your family, man, but being from Afghanistan and fighting in the wars and doing what you did and, and, and how hard you worked for it and the list of accolades that you have on this sheet of paper in front of you, man, it couldn't have been an easy feat. What we like to do is tell everybody a little bit about yourself and how you got to, to sit in front of me right now and for us to talk about this. But if you can, man, let's back it up a little bit. Are you born in Afghanistan? Yep, I was uh, born in uh, northern Afghanistan in a small village. And uh, we were close to Bagram, the airfield. So, what was that like? Talk about that growing up in Afghanistan. Most people see the mountains and the, de and the desert parts of it, and they don't, they don't see the beautiful parts or the, the ongoings on the inside because it's all been about war. And the first time anybody oh, paid attention to Afghanistan yeah, is when yeah. we started fighting. Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, I mean uh, you know, even there, it's a beautiful country. Uh, it's like all nature, uh, not a lot of cities, rural areas. You would go to, uh, you know, villages that people still don't have access to the, you know, TVs and stuff. They don't even know what's going on around the world. But so, you know, we we uh, we had a big family. As usual, most Afghan uh, have big families and we were one of them. And then on the other side, poverty was one of the problems. And then we were like, you know, six, seven brothers. And, you know, we, we were a big family. Is that, what, is that technically what my, big is? Seven to ten kids? Uh, yeah, so we were total uh, like nine, and then unfortunately I lost uh, two of my oldest sisters when they were very little uh, to starvation, and then so back then seven of us were left, and then two more added at the end of the my father's journey in his life. I mean he's still alive, but so we were we were total of like eleven uh, brothers and sisters. Uh, beside the two that you know, uh, unfortunately, you know they had to leave the world pretty early because of you know situations and challenges, and we couldn't. Uh, I mean, we didn't have enough food. And uh, my father was uh, he was in the military, uh, but it was. you know, military. His Afghani military. Yeah, yeah, he was a former officer back in. So he was back when we had the Russians. Yeah, he fought the, the Russians, U right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, he he was a uh, at the beginning he was because uh, he was graduated from the school back then. It wasn't a requirement to be uh, you know university or college graduate. So he was a uh, you know, high school graduate, and then he became an officer. And then I mean he didn't retire, but you know government collapsed, and uh, he you know kind of retired as a colonel. And uh, but back then he was a cap. He, I think he was lieutenant or captain. And the wages or the salary wasn't uh, good enough for a big family. And, you know, the country, 
the economy was pretty bad and you know living uh, in an era of communism and uh, you know you have that russian thing and then you don't have but like everything was like you know like back uh, 80s and 90s especially for afghanistan a third world country and then everybody was working like me as i was very very young but as i told you i don't exactly remember the dates but i was uh, very young that i was uh, that was the least thing i could do to help the family i was taking the ships and we had just you know just few uh, ships and i was taking them early morning like four or five in the morning in the dark with a stick in my hand going to the mountains just to, you know feed them because the village we were living in was more like you know rocks and mountains, so you had to find a very good spot for the uh, sheep and goats to you know you can feed them. And then you know from there it went up. Just you know we started slowly, slowly get a little better. We were all living in one room, uh, didn't have any windows uh, because of you know it was a mad house uh, built of mud. Uh, which is pretty common in Afghanistan. Yeah. And because mud is, uh, clay is easy, you know, dirt is there, water is there, it's easy to build, don't need much uh, constructions, tools, and equipment. And then uh, later, just a few hours, five, six, when we moved to nearby one of the closest cities that was close to our village, uh, we walked, uh, I don't remember the exact, but it was like almost 24 hours. Uh, just walking down the road to because there was uh, no cars uh, to get to the you know that little city that was close to us, and then from there, you know we were in that city for a few years, and then we moved to Kabul city, and from so the, all these areas are like we were all living in poverty, like everybody we were making minimum most of the times we weren't even making anything. And then we, my mom, she was working in a house uh, for this family as uh, as a servant. Uh, so at the end of the day, they weren't given us, uh, they weren't given my mom uh, or family salaries. It was just, uh, they would give you food and stuff at the end. And uh, it was like, you know, we were happy. At the end of the day, we were just, you know, like, oh God, we were happy that we exist and it's a challenge. We tried to push through it, get better. And then, you know, by the time then these, I don't I mean, I call them shitheads, but I'm sorry, Taliban, they showed up. And then, you know, country went, uh, economy went worse. Everything was bad. So they, talk about uh, that a little bit, if you don't mind. So what, what, to break down the, the dynamic in the Afghan villages, is it each village mainly like a, a family, like the same family? Or does each house have a different family? Are you related to like your cousins and everything? And when the Taliban showed up, talk about that a little bit. Is it just like a gang walking down the street and they show up in your neighborhood? Or is it is it more structured? Yeah, yeah. sure. Uh, so the, but there's more like very detailed uh, kind of information that people, especially on the this side of the world, they don't know about it, which was so first coming back to the villages. It's pretty common, like, you know, Afghan villages all over the country, they are, you know, traditional. They have to help each other at the good times, bad times. And so basically everybody know each other. Like uh, weddings, when weddings are happen, happening in the village, everybody was invited. Yeah. Whether you like it or you don't like them, they were invited. Because uh, if their wedding happened, then you're, you're also invited uh, 
the so it's like we all know each other we are uh, you know we are in it at the same time and if it's bad if it's good like funerals if somebody dies uh, in the village if he's young if he's old male female a lot of like everybody show up in the whole village like everybody uh, you would see at least at least like the thousand a uh, thousand people 800 people that was like regular the same thing for wedding uh, while they're coming to help you when you're in a in a pretty uh, bad situation like you know losing some uh, a loved one then on weddings they will of course show up help uh, it wasn't just all the time for to get feed uh, i mean they weren't there for the food uh, but they were there to help you and because you know it's hard to serve all these people so you cook for them and then everybody eats and then they help you and clean the house and after that they walk with you because we were living in a village so we were still using horse was pretty expensive horse was like you having a bugatti back then so mainly donkeys we didn't have camels because afghanistan is not really like they have parts that they uh, they use camels but not Northern Afghanistan, so we had donkeys. Yeah, t- what, what, what's the difference on that? Because I've only seen a few. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, Afghanistan has the south south side and east side, north side and west side. North is, you know, it have uh, people in the north, they have almost like a very different culture. Uh, and then people in the south they have a very different culture. And the weather are very different. Like north is uh, cold. Uh, it snows a lot in the winter. And uh, you know the weather gets pretty cold, and it's more mountainous, and there are of course deserts, but it's like more green. And then you have the south side, which is more desert, like Kandahar, Helmand, Zabul, uh, like Ghazni. These are the provinces that you go from Kabul. Uh, mainly, you know, everybody knows, of course, Helmand and Kandahar. And then you have uh, Uruzgan. These are all like. Areas uh, that you know it's more deserted, like uh, there's less green, more uh, desert, and just few mountains. So some people were using uh, camels because of you know that distance that you can't get uh, water. Yeah. And of course, you know camels go for a very long ride with uh, just you know minimum water. And then that was the difference. And then you have Eastern Afghanistan, which was. Of course, you've been to like Jaybad, uh, yeah. Jalalabad, or Nangarhar, Konar, Nuristan. Uh, these areas are like all green, mountainous, and then the weather is also a little different. So the weather is more of like you have Pacific here, like California and Texas. So uh, Eastern Afghanistan weather is like that. In the summer, it's pretty hot, but still green and beautiful. And in the winter, it doesn't snow there, just, you know, a small parts of it. And then, you know, it was mainly, you know, mainly it rains, but it's always green. That's why they call Jalalabad or Nangarhar, uh, one of the eastern provinces, the uh, always green province. Like it's always green if you go there in summer, if you go there in winter. And then you have the west side of the country, which is Khos, Paktia, Paktika. These are also bordered with Pakistan. Uh, and uh, they're all like, steep mountains and you don't see much green it's a mix of like a little green and a little desert yeah. so that was the difference between the four side of the country yeah every time i try to explain it and even before we went over it would have helped out a lot if if they made it relative to the united states because when i go into this city what city is it like is kandahar like new york is it like uh, houston or something 
And then when they started breaking it down like that from the north, south, east, and west, like if you're in the mountains in a certain part of the country, you're dealing with mountain people. Mountain people act a certain way. It's always cold. They always got to climb the mountains. They're in a good or bad mood. Same way with city folks. And it took a while. I remember rolling around in there for a while before I started seeing that. It took one of my chiefs to, to even point it out to me. But it definitely helps when you're rolling around in the area, if you know it. The best thing we had is when we hooked up with y'all, when y'all started stepping up. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so, you know, to come to the, your point, uh, that was one of uh, when I was, you know, doing the stuff uh, with the U.S. Uh, forces. Well, that was one of my, uh, you know, key points always. I always emphasize that, you know, I'm sure, I don't know if, what was the experience like back in the early uh, years of the Operation Enduring Freedom. Uh, they were using Afghans that they were born in the U.S. Yeah. or migrated That's right. like long ago to U.S. Yeah. And, you know, that wasn't uh, good. I was I always said, use locals and listen to the locals. Of course, you know, don't trust everybody, but the one that you trust, listen to them because they've been in the country. They know everything. But the ones that are in the U.S., uh, they have not, they have not been in the country for a long time. Most of them were not even born in the Afghanistan, so they don't know the culture. But, you know, uh, that was uh, one of the parts that made stuff a lot of confusing uh, for the troops when they were coming in. So, oh, but, you know. I mean, real confusing. It's like yeah, somebody yeah, giving yeah. you intel that doesn't have any idea. Well, just because they, they identify as that doesn't mean they can help you with with it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, we had, uh, you know, we call them the Cat 2, Cat 3 Terps. And, I yeah. mean, uh, the interpreter, the Terps is the short form. It's not a, uh, you know, that's a made-up word for in the military. Uh, they call the enter uh, translators terps, and so we had the cat two and cat three terps that they were getting like you no know, way way uh, you know more salary than of course the locals. Like some of them were uh, at the beginning were getting like uh, fifteen, and then if you have top secret clearance, you would get almost like eighteen twenty k a month, and it was all because they had that name tag on them that yeah, they are after. I remember. But they didn't have, as you said, uh, they didn't have any information on what was going on in the country and what's currently going on. And they most of times, of course, not all of them, but some of them were even scared of to go outside the wire because, you know, they that, that tells you like they are not familiar with the area. That's why that's why, you know, especially special operations, they were always, uh, you know, Keying and listening to the their local terps they had because they knew the value for the locals. Bro, I had your ass glued to my hip anytime we went out the door. That was the way it was, man. Y'all became. A, I still talk about our terps from a couple of my deployments. They were so good. You can't get yeah, anything yeah. done without them. You just can't get anything done. I mean, it's like I have your own personal intel officer. It's it's. The oh best. Yeah. yeah. So exactly. when did you get yeah. wrapped? Obviously, how old are you? We talked about that a little bit. So when the Russians came in, y'all had that break because that was 20 years of war. Y'all whole the whole country was fighting. I mean, everybody was in on that one. Yeah. So, but on coming back to your question about the you know Taliban, when you asked that did they can walk in as a gang in yeah. the in the country. So the, the situation with the Taliban, you, you, everybody knows about the you know the uh, war in Afghanistan back when the Russians were in the country, and uh, you know. Back then, the Northern Alliance people who were fighting, you know, the Northern Resistance Force fighting the Russians, uh, they, you know, we call them Mujahideen, yeah, which is which means holy warrior in you know in our in Islamic terms or in our language. 
And then, you know, of course, they were, of course, you know, everybody knows this. They were getting support by the U.S. to fight the Russians and all that thing. And the Russians left the country. Uh, you know, of course, they got their ass kicked and they left the country. And then, so after the Russians, when they left the country, it was, I think, 89 or some uh, dates close to that. And because we use the Afghan dates, it's a little sometimes hard to convert them back to the you know English dates. And then... We did not have uh, a person or a good leader. So, you know, as I told you, Afghanistan has south, east, west, north, right? Every part of this country, I mean, they have their own leaders because they have different culture. They have, they have wow. a different uh, language that they speak. And so they have their own leaders. When they were fighting the Russians, uh, every port had their own leader. Southern Afghanistan had uh, Mullah Omar, the, you know, of course, the uh, what they call it, the creator of the Taliban uh, network. And then, you know, you have uh, Ahmad Shah Massoud uh, in the north side. And then you have Gulbuddin Hekmatari on the east side. And on the west side, there were like you know, a bunch of names. They weren't really famous. So, it, you know, the civil war started between the Afghans. I want the power. I want the power. And like, South won the power, North, the guy from the North wants the power. That created a chaos and, you know, people started robbing people and people were getting killed when they were traveling. I mean, a woman were getting killed and unfortunately, you know, getting harassed, tortured, raped. Uh, kids, the same thing, were getting killed. People were, you know, so the situation went very bad uh, in the kind of civil wars uh, thing. In Kabul city, so these four, uh, you know, jihadi commanders, they're fighting each other. Uh, they didn't care. You know, we, we, when, uh, we didn't have a school, but uh, when we were going to the city uh, because we had to walk or sometimes you get lucky, you get, find a bicycle. And then uh, they would shoot at you. They didn't care. Uh, these were Afghans shooting at the other Afghans. There were no Russians on that time. And then uh, they would shoot at you They're just for fun. Uh, because, you know, that mentality that uh, uh, being uh, uh, rogue, being uh, like kind of pirate kind of mentality that you you have to be out there fighting all the time and killing and killing. So this was uh, the thing. Uneducated people, everybody. Like, sometimes they were just were trying testing their weapons on a random pedestrian that they were walking the, down the street. So the civil war was pretty bad. It was among the Afghans. And then on 95, I think, was it, uh, then people in southern Afghanistan started complaining, the locals, that we need somebody to help us. So this village, uh, which is in Khakras district, uh, was, this is where I was with the SEAL Team 4 and Team 10. And then Mullah Omar, uh, he was the Taliban leader, uh, the former Taliban leader. He was a uh, priest uh, which we you know in the islamic way we call it mullah but in you know we in christianity guess call it uh, priest or uh, the guy who runs the church if i'm not mistaken that's right so he was running this mosque as a mullah or as a you know uh, the muslim priest 
And then people uh, started asking him because he used to fight with the Russians back in the time. And they're asking him like, oh, please help us. And then so Mullah Omar stood up with a bunch of guys from this little village. And they started taking over Kandahar city in one day. Like the Kandahar fallen very quick, like very quick. Then they took over, uh, uh, you know, Kandahar, Zabal, uh, Helmand, Oruzgan are very close to each other. And they all speak Pashto. And the Mulamar was Pashtun. And so okay, that, that uh, southern Afghanistan fallen pretty quick. And then from there, when they gained that power, they started marching toward, uh, you know, Kabul and then toward northern Afghanistan. And that's uh, how, because people were tired, they wanted peace, they wanted to live in peace. And they were assuming maybe, you know, Taliban are good because they are from the people. They're, you know, people uh, resisting uh, these cruel uh, warlords. So they walk and they came into Kabul. And then we have the neighboring snake uh, uh, on our right side, which is Pakistan. Pakistan intelligence service, uh, they wanted to influence Afghanistan pretty bad because back when we had a lot of power, when, when, the, when the Russians were there, the government was good, the army was strong, we had jade, we had you know, fighting jets, we had we, we been a lot of, uh, the army was pretty strong. And then uh, Pakistan was always uh, terrified of Afghanistan, and they never wanted to see Afghanistan developed and strong uh, because they, they looked at the Afghanistan as a threat. And on the other side, you have Iran. Iran is the same thing. You know, they, the neighboring countries, they they never want to see somebody uh, like, especially like a country like Afghanistan develop because this these people been in war and, they, you know, they just scare people off. So uh, story short, then, you know, the ISI influenced the Taliban when they came into Kabul. Back in, I think it was close between 1995-96, the former Afghan president, his name was Dr. Najib. He was, uh, he was uh, in, a, uh, in a UN uh, uh, compound, like a safe house, and he was protected by the UN. So to, he said, uh, and I'm happy to hand over the government to you guys officially on a piece, piece of paper, uh, uh, but you know, you don't just don't kill me and don't kill my family. So what the Taliban did back in that time, they took him off the UN compound. And then unfortunately, he was a very good president for it because he wanted good for the country. Uh, they uh, they you know, uh, killed his brother first and then they, uh, ex- uh, they executed both of them in the uh, Kabul city in a, like, in, a, in a crowded area of the Kabul city, like the downtown. And then after they executed both of you know the president and his brother, then they hang him in the city as an example. These were the part that we had the ISI already influenced among the Taliban. So you had ISIs that they didn't want. The regular Taliban, they were fine with the president, but ISI, they didn't want him, so they influenced them. They had a lot of people in the Taliban leadership. And of course, you know, that five years, a very bad time, you know, feeling like you're in a prison uh, because bunch of illiterate people trying to educate you uh, uh, on your religion that they don't even know uh, a very small part of that religion. And then, you know, people, they want to keep you back in that 200 years ago situation. They don't want you to go to school. They don't want you to study. 
and then schools were all locked down. Uh, so they used the schools for, uh, you know, religious uh, studies. And of course, you know, religious uh, religion is all re- religions are. If you are not expert at it, people can manipulate you pretty easy. Like you know, back in the Crusade Wars, the you know that Christian situation we had, and then we had the Muslims with this situation because you don't know and it's all faith and belief and they came in these people with the long beards oh you know there's a holy war you have to be prepared for it and then you know they train you they give you that uh, brainwash situation which was uh, okay if you fight no matter what you will go to heaven and of course that 72 or 42 uh, virgins are waiting for you and that young guy with boiled blood in, in his body uh, and you know he doesn't have anything to lose and he's like okay if i die you know i'm gonna go to heaven and you know of course that's it's a win-win situation for me so that's how they manipulated people to stay with the taliban uh, but i know it was a pretty bad such a time uh, woman woman and children were oppressed and people if you were walking if you're a woman walking in the street and uh, if you don't have socks and somebody can see your feet, uh, they would uh, use a whip and started beating you. I mean, whipping you. And then if you try to fight them, they will. I'm sure you guys all have seen that video that they execute that woman in the street. Uh, she's wearing that blue burqa. Uh, she was executed for, uh, uh, I, I wasn't there, but we were close uh, when she was executed. Uh, she was executed for not wearing socks. And I am, I'm very educated in my religion, and there's nowhere in the in Islam that says anything about if you're bare feet or somebody can see your feet, you have to be whipped. But, you know, people are uneducated, nobody's fighting them, and people are starving, starvation, poverty, uh, and uh, people are dying. And so it was, it was a pretty dark, dark era. Like, it was pretty bad. And so that was the Taliban. I mean, of course, there's like much more detail into that Taliban, whole Taliban thing. Oh, sure. With the, yeah, stuff they did. But generally, if you want to like, kind of brief it out, it's like you have Kim Jong-un and then you have Putin and then you have this bunch of people with no brain running a country. So assume what the you know outcome would be. Yeah. How old were you when you started mixing up into the military? And so... The back then they were looking for people to you know that they could speak uh, English because it was uh, people weren't going to war zone. Everybody wanted to work like in the Kabul city, and I was uh, uh, I was seven, uh, 16. I was sixteen years old, and the requirement age was eighteen years old uh, to become a terp uh, or work for the U.S. Uh, military. And then I really wanted to, I swear, I really wanted to become a, a Terp. The only reason was that it might be funny. It's funny for me when I sometimes look at it because I wanted to have a good gym and some good food. And of course, the salary was a part of it, but mainly so I can have some good food for after like all these years. And for me, I was, uh, no, I did. I created this fake uh, Afghan ID, which Afghan IDs were back then were a piece of paper with a picture on it, and then these bunch of stamps and you know some of information. So I did change that to 18. My 16 years old uh, uh, ID, I changed it to 18, and then 
I went to these camps like Camp Phoenix in Cabo City. Yeah. They were hiring uh, Terps. And unfortunately, some of the Terps that they were like the locals or the Terps that they were hiring new Terps had this little attitude. I still remember. I remember and even though the military uh, had demand, like big demand for these Terps because there were a lot of operations going on and they needed people that speak English. But these Terps with the attitude in Camp Phoenix, and they they failed me for, uh, uh, I, I did not know one word. He asked me for one English word. I, f- I mean, I didn't know that word. It was about election or something. I got so pissed and I was like, man, if just fail me for, for one word, I'm sure you can uh, go ask some of these English speakers, even some Americans, Canadians, and you know British. Some people might fail in not knowing one word, but that doesn't mean I don't know English. So anyway, I failed, and then I was pissed. Of course, you know, you failed, and that was my dream job because of the gym, food, and uh, you know, I wanted to experience this. Uh, this new life and because we were in war and I wanted to experience this new thing. So I, I went to Kandahar. I went to Kandahar and then the story is like, it's pretty not really scary for me, but maybe scary for a lot of people. I had to go through a lot of Taliban checkpoints uh, and drive almost uh, eight hours uh, in these Taliban checkpoints and areas uh, to get to Kandahar. And I only have money in my pocket that if I pass, great. If I don't pass, I have to walk back from Kandahar because I don't have more money to, you know, buy a ticket or a bus ticket or get a taxi to come back to Kabul. So I didn't even think about that as like, oh, let's borrow some money. I I was like, okay, I'm going to pass. I just had this feeling like, you know, God will be on my side. You know, I'm going to go. And then I was 17 when I... Uh, joined the the you know the coalition forces as a terp and I started working as a terp. So you get to Kandahar and you pass. Oh yeah, yeah. So the funny thing was that this interview was very easy. It was like very easy interview, and because they knew these terps, these Afghans or these locals that they are coming into these kind of compounds to do the interview. They don't know. Um, I mean, they knew English, but they are not very good at it. So they would give them chances, like you know, to get better when they get to the bases. So at least you know it would help. They give them a, at least a small hand to the coalition forces, and you know you will re- learn throughout the, the time you work there. And but some companies, their expectations were very high. They wanted somebody that speak very good English. And those people that they want, they could speak very good English. They didn't want to work in war zones. They yeah. want to work in the cities close to their homes and families. Funny how that works, right? Yeah, and <laughs> right. I forgot about that until you said it. But yeah, that was. That, as a matter of fact, I didn't even notice it until you've been yeah. there for a while. But for sure, what unit? What was the first unit you strapped up with? So back then, I didn't even know what I mean, special operation is, what oh, the yeah, conventional sure. units are. So I started working with the Canadians, and it helped me a lot, to be honest, with the Canadians, because Canadians have these three regiments, and they had like three deployments. One was the French regiment, and the one was, uh, you know, Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. But these were the regiments, and they had their... Uh, recon and special operation units so the team i started working with was the joint task force two like canadian special forces 
And my English, man, my English was so weak. I, like, I would, from a whole sentence, or like, when you talk to me, I would understand like 30, 40% of it. And then I was just trying to play smart, uh, you know, uh, be smart and not to give away that I don't understand much. And unless it's like a very important uh, matter, which they weren't using uh, as uh, locals back then for that, then I would ask him like, hey, could you, you know, repeat what you said? I don't understand it. And then I started with the Canadian SF and there was a French regiment and the funny part was, so some of most of these French guys, they weren't, they couldn't even speak English. So for me, it was a help because I could just flex that few English I knew on these Canadian French guys. They were cool. They were, you know, SF guys. They're always, you know, my favorite uh, band of the brothers. And they were pretty cool. They were always supportive. And, um, you know, they were always looking at me laughing at my English because it was a pretty awkward way English I had back then. I mean, I don't speak great English now either, but it was pretty bad back then. Yeah, you do. Uh, you speak it just fine. I don't speak good English. You speak good English. <laughs> so don't worry about it. It's the difference between getting your point across right away as opposed to, you know, not. Yeah. And... Uh, and so I um, um, then you know I started working for them, and my success with that letter at the beginning uh, was I always try to understand and not uh, translate word by word. So I would explain to them because of the culture difference, and there are a lot of difference, and that uh, what made my job easier for me. So I would explain to them uh, in my own way, and they would understand it, and. I'm sure, Marcus, you have this feeling like, you know, when you Terp, uh, Terp does a good translation, you have that feeling. It was that, the best. Okay, and yeah, then when you're you, sitting there, you, you got, a new guy comes in and starts going to the number, and you got this guy just talking for 15, 20 minutes. And then the Terp turned around and said, he's fine. I'm like, yeah, what? Uh, and I, It took him that long to just tell me he was fine? There's got to be something more in there. <laughs> and then it's, it was developing a relationship with our Terp, because once we buddied up with them, like I'm still buddies with them. And you get that yep. flow because then you, it, it is, it's not just speaking the language, man. It's like, what's going on in that neighborhood? And oh, in, yeah. in America, if you walk into any neighborhood, they're all different. And oh, yeah, inside exactly. there, you can walk in, somebody could have been in an argument or something. There could have been a family argument going on. And the worst was what the neighbors would get pissed at the other neighbor and be oh, like, yeah. hey, the bad guy's in that house right there. And he wasn't a bad guy. He was just pissed at his neighbor. So going to yeah. get, getting through all that stuff in the beginning was sure it was tough. Oh, yeah. Lo local Terps were pretty good because, you know, Afghans, uh, uh, we, it's, it's pretty common in Afghanistan. We speak loud. And then uh, back here in the U.S., especially nowadays, with the, some of these young generation, if when you talk to them, they're like, why are you yelling at me? I'm, like, I'm not yelling <laughs> That's at you. Yeah, it's a city <laughs> thing. They, they do that. Yeah. It's like, man, I thought and that dude was then, yelling at me the uh, whole damn so, time. But, you know, of course, uh, so these uh, some of the troops, especially the conventional uh, uh, army, uh, you know, we called it back then regular army, because, you know, the, most of them were first time deployment and they were young. Uh, they didn't know much about the country. And, you know, of course, they never seen uh, people talk like that. And especially when they were talking on the phone, they're like, hey, what's going on? Where are you? They're like, is he fighting? I was like, nah, nah, he's just talking. He's right? talking no, to you, man. Just regular talk. It's like dealing so, with a New Yorker. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like, yeah, I, I, yeah, I thought so, you were yelling yeah. at me the first two years of our relationship. <laughs> Come to find out you're yeah. just talking. Uh, especially when you get the hands going. 
uh, when they when they start getting the hands, they'll get up close to you and they're trying to extend. And Afghans are great. They're kind of like Texans when if they don't know the language, they just talk louder. Like that helps. And you're like, um, oh yeah, you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, <laughs> that was, that was the best. So yeah. you you patched up with the Canadians. That was your what was your first mission? What was that like? Well, first uh, first mission was to be honest, uh, very, well, was very scary for me because you know of course when you go to any uh, place, uh, especially in the military. Uh, it's an area called war zone. You know, of course, you ask around like, hey, what's going on? Uh, what's the ID situation here? As suicide bombing, ambushes, where, where what areas are bad? So the area that I was assigned in Panjwai, which was like a, one of the worst districts uh, for the Kandar province, uh, you know, even to like till two years ago was like one of the worst places. And so I was assigned there. And then the first mission when we went out, and you know, I don't know if back then you, uh, you guys had the, I'm, I'm sure you guys had the ICAM scanners that you listen to the Taliban chatter. Yeah. And so they gave me these one of these ICAM scanners and then, uh, you know, of course, I didn't have because the, I was new and the Canadians have a lot of different rules on the for the Terps carrying guns and stuff compared to the uh, U.S. special operation was very different back then. And then they weren't give they didn't give us any guns and stuff. So yeah, I only had a body armor and a helmet. And I have this scanner that I'm listening to the Taliban conversation. And I took everything serious that they say. Yeah, and like, oh, they started talking about us. We were doing this little patrol uh, in this uh, village, like my first ever mission. And then uh, we were, I'm listening to them. They're like, oh, I see him. Oh, prepare your guns. Oh, let's ambush him. Let's shoot him. And then, you know, of course you get scared. Like, oh, they're going to shoot at you. Especially a person like me, I don't have a gun to fight. So I have the best option for me would be just, you know, just drop on the ground, you know, lay there. Uh, let these bullets fly over your head and, you know, let these guys fight it because you don't have anything to fight. You can't throw rocks at them. And then uh, that was uh, my first uh, experience. So then we went to this village and I was just the captain, the team commander was in front of me. So I was just doing uh, what he was doing. If he was going kneeling position, I was going kneeling. Uh, in that one case, he went prone position when I told them that, you know, they might ambush us. They're talking about shooting at us uh, till uh, we found out they're, they are just bluffing. Uh, like sometimes, and sometimes it was real. Like they would say we are going to oh, yeah. ambush and they would ambush. So we, we always took it serious because uh, an intelligence, they say, no matter how weak the intel is, but you have to always take it serious. It might be, uh, you know, pretty solid, accurate intel, but it might be just, you know, uh, information from nowhere. I remember that. And yeah, I remember that. I remember going out the first time, too. I had my armor up, I had my rifle on, and then I look over, and then the Turk was standing there with a helmet and a radio. I was like, well, <laughs> yeah. I really don't feel scared anymore. Actually, yep. I feel like, and, a, I feel like uh, an so asshole for feeling scared because you're standing over there with a damn radio. But that was it. I mean, man, it was pretty Western back in those days. We were still trying to figure everything out. Oh, yeah, yeah. Remember that? I mean, that was crazy, bro. Especially now, the way it was over now. But the way it escalated in the beginning, and then it kind of had that, that a drawn-out pattern, and it would get violent, and it would slow down, and then every town would change. Man, it was, it was dynamic for sure. How long were oh, you with yeah, the Canadians? Yeah. Yeah, so I did uh, one year with the Canadians, yeah, right. and uh, I just didn't like, I mean, uh, 
me as an Afghan, generally Afghans are like this. If you're not really used to being to you know listening to a lot of rules and regulation, and uh, back then this was the one of the main problems of the coalition forces that I've noticed throughout all these years was lack of trust between the. Some uh, not everybody, but uh, some of the teams uh, with their local uh, with their with their terps, uh, you know, till they get to know them. So uh, because I don't blame the teams, I of course I never blame the teams because when they are getting deployed on um, pre-deployment, they t- they tell them like you know, my mom, uh, that's what I heard from one of the operators. He said like we were told like not to trust the locals, uh, you know, because you know maybe something may might go sideways. And so there was this trust issue all the time, and they were always like, our phone was always locked, so and we couldn't talk to, we could only talk to our families like once a week. And the Canadian has like more restrictions and rules, and then so I don't just really like it. And I ate MREs for seven months straight. Mm, that was good Morning. for you. Yeah, I'll put the, some hair on your was, chest, bro. Eating freaking MREs for a year. Yeah, and uh, they were, for me, I mean, as I told you, one of the reasons that I, I mean, I started working was to have at least some good food, right? You know, you're fighting. I, I just, at least when you die, you just don't die from like, okay, I, I was hungry when I died. I was always like, okay, when I die, I want to feel like, okay, you know, I, I was full. I didn't need more food. So I was, you know, happily died. That's That was my motto yeah. back then. And Jim was, of course, uh, part of it. And then, so the Canadians uh, has a lot of rules, restrictions, no good food, no good shower, and the pay was pretty low. And for me, I because of the, ga- not gangster, but that Wild West mindset I had, I was like, you know, it's time to uh, uh, start working with the Americans. I was about to say, <laughs> you got that Wild West mentality, you got to come work with us. <laughs> we're, we're the ones that embody that. Everybody, yeah, everybody knows it. And then, you know, I said, you know, man, it's, it's hard with these Canadians, bro. They got too many uh, rules. Uh, they can, Canadians have warrant officers uh, in the teams, you know. Yeah. Uh, but the, uh, in the army, I don't know. I, didn't, I never worked with the conventional army. But uh, so the Canadians have these warrants. So one of the things probably wasn't good I was saying it but I because I was young I never thought about it I was always flexing Americans uh, on the Canadians and they never liked it I'm sure they love <laughs> that <laughs> yeah because so we do I that to like, them as well I mean we come at them e- e- even harder love you Canadians I, I really do but I mean we that, that's a thing though we mess with each other hardcore yeah exactly and you know back then Canadians were mainly running just southern Afghanistan like you know Kandahar and yeah. uh, the area and I know Americans were like all over the country and you know bigger bases uh, massive bases were but the Americans and smaller portion of it was with the Canadian because you know we had I don't know 70 countries that was in the country Romanians uh, you have uh, you know Lithuanians you have everybody you'd and see them yeah, yeah I, I remember that like, hey man, there's, there's a bunch of different countries here. I'm like, where are they at? And then yeah, you're out exactly. in the middle of nowhere. I mean, out in the middle of nowhere, and you run across them. The girl, yeah, yeah. the Polish guys, we worked with them sometimes, man. The Canadians, the French, yeah, man, they were all out there. 
French, the Dutch, the, yep. you know, he had Dutchers. Romanian was one of the, uh, you know, of course, they, man, I felt bad for him. They didn't even have anything. They, I looked at them as like, man, they are in a situation. They need help themselves. But, you know, they're out here helping us. But, you know, God bless them. So, right. Whoever threw know, them out there like that. I mean, I, right. I'm, that's what I'm saying. I, that, that was funny. I'm like, who are you guys? So where do they stay? Yeah, are yeah. They on- who, who the hell are y'all? <laughs> How'd you even get here? Nobody even recognized their flag, which I'm not trying to throw a shot at them. I'm just like, man, some of them countries, you got to hand it to a man. He's like, hey, we got four dudes. Here you go. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Remember that, Yusuf? They'd just be like, and there'd only be a handful of them. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're a small number of them. And then you're like, man. So they would get feed in the American defect because they didn't have their own defect. And, you know, one of the biggest flicks that I wanted to have because of the restrictions back with the Canadians and, the, you know, a lot of rules. And uh, because we were in a, a regular army base and our team was very small and we were just, you know, embedded with the uh, you know regular Canadian uh, forces. Uh, we just had one tenth uh, and, you know, in that big base. And so there was not much of like I was like, you know, you're in a war zone. You don't know. You, you, go, you might die uh, any second you step out of the wire. Or maybe you get IDF, the rocket attacks on the base. You know, maybe you die. Just, you know, why not have that like little freedom? The, this was like one of the things I always told the team commanders and the warrants, the people I work with, especially back then with the Canadians. I said, hey, man, let me tell you this. If I want to kind of snitch on you guys, uh, you know, sell you guys out, I don't even need to, I mean, I'm smart not to use my, you know, phone that I have. You know, I can easily buy a phone for 20 bucks from outside with a SIM card in it and sell you guys out. But have you guys ever thought about it? Like, why would I sell you guys out? I'm walking on the same walking patrol that you guys are walking. And I would, it's like I'm selling myself out. And I'm from Northern Afghanistan and I'm working in the Southern Afghanistan. I don't even know. Uh, like any of these people in this village, they look at me uh, more uh, in, a, in a in a bad way. Oh yeah, uh, they look at me. They yeah, got the you know, worst. Yeah, sure. You remember, you know, they looked at the Turks worse than they were looking at the you know coalition forces. They were like, you know, these were the infidel. If you kill a Turk, uh, I mean, yeah. they were. You know, they made up so many stuff that for their uh, Taliban fighters. Uh, you know, if you kill a Terp, uh, their their first target was always the Terp, yeah. because you know, if you kill the Terp, there's no communication between the coalition and the uh, village uh, people in the village, so it might cancel their operation. So we were the the biggest target, and then of course you don't have a gun, uh, and you you from the two uh, two hundred yards uh, or I don't know two thousand meters, everybody can see you you're an Afghan or you're local among uh, these, uh, you know, coalition troops. So I left the Canadian and then I, you know, but when I told the warrant, a lot of stuff, I was like, man, you guys don't have shit. We are fucking starving. I'm sorry for swearing, but, you know. <laughs> so, uh, and then the warrant got pissed. He said, when you go back to your American friends, then you can do whatever you want, not here with us. And I said, okay, sure, you know. But uh, I'm just gonna, you know, give you my resignation. Uh, that, uh, but not that doesn't mean that I'm resigning from being this, uh, doing this job. Just resigning from your team and try to go back to the uh, Kandahar Airfield, CAF, and get to uh, start working with the American uh, SF unit. And then, so he told me like, okay, he told me f off at the end. Uh, he was so pissed because of you know me always flexing the American. 
uh, on them. <clears throat> there was only one team sergeant. His name was uh, McDougal. I, I don't really exactly remember his name, but it was like 13, uh, 12, 13 years ago. He told me, man, go back with the Americans, bro. We don't have shit. Just go back with the Americans. You know, you can go out there, kick some doors, you know, do what you want to do. And also, not of course, uh, I don't want people listening to this podcast take a, take this idea of that, you know, Americans were like, you know, doing this Wild West, going, you know, killing everybody. It was just, you know, you had more support when you were working with them. And then, so resigned and then came back to Kandahar. Kandahar, the base, they said, we don't have uh, any team. Uh, I mean, any nowadays, we don't have any spot with the uh, special forces. And I said, they told me, if you want to work with the uh, conventional, the regular army, I said, no, man, I'm not really into rules and restriction. So I went to Kabul. I, w- I was going on my leave. And during this leave, I had one month leave uh, because I was in on base like for four or five months back then. And then I said, I'm going to find, I went to Camp Phoenix back again to the Camp Phoenix. And I, you know, I passed pretty quick. And I told them at the beginning that when I entered and when I passed, I said, hey, I don't care where you're going to send me, what part of the country you're going to send me. If you're going to assign me with a, you know, ODA or a SEAL team, you know, any special operation uh, unit, I'm going to work with you guys. If not, uh, you know, I don't want to work with you guys. And then, you know, 25 Terps were selected from like 50, 60 people. And none of them had the experience. None of them were being out, uh, out you know, in the combat or in the war zone. They were all new. And my emphasis was always like, you know, assign me with a special uh, operation team. Assign me with a special operation team. And most of these new guys were scared to go to Kandahar, Helmand. And back then, I think Marja, the operation, the big operation that started the clearing operation in Helmand, it was called the Marja operation. Yeah. Uh, that was happening. And uh, they were hiring a lot of Terps because it was a like, massive, big clearing operation trying to clear all these Taliban off the Helmand province. And uh, so... We, we all get assigned these 25 Terps. We were assigned uh, uh, to go to Kandahar and they will give us an assignment back there. So it's last day of this. We had two day, weeks of uh, English training uh, for the new guys. You know, I had to be part of it because I was new with the company. And at the end of this two week training, uh, uh, the head of the company came and told me, he said, you speak better English than uh, these new guys. Could you talk about a topic uh, because we have, uh, you know, a colonel uh, coming? You know, colonel was big deal back in these bases because uh, a general was like a general was running like half of the country, so colonel was a big deal. And so the, the colonel is coming, and some you know reporters are coming, uh, you know, American reporters to see what this training does to these uh, new terps. And then uh, so I said, okay, sure. What do you want me to talk about? They said leadership. And but till back then, I didn't uh, didn't know that leadership is an acronym. It's like you know abbreviation. Every letter stands for something. I thought leadership is you know just a word. And uh, so I put uh, the leadership. I spilled the leadership in my hand uh, with a marker so I don't forget the letters. And I started talking about it. I started talking about it. I don't know, man. That was God's blessing. I started talking this so perfect English that. 
it looked like my father was from downtown Texas and my mom was, <laughs> I don't know, from uh, Wyoming or somewhere. And Iowa. They don't, <laughs> yeah, or Ohio. <laughs> and uh, so I, I did this beautiful uh, briefing that everybody, this one guy, this one asshole, <laughs> I'm sorry, uh, he... He stand up. He asked me this question in the middle of this briefing, and I'm stressed out. <laughs> it's my first time doing something like this in front of you know a lot of terps that the experienced terps were sitting on the other side watching this presentation. He asked me something. I forgot what the question was. He asked me something, and I I was like I was stressed out, and I, I swear if he would have, you know kind of emphasized on his question, I would have maybe lost it. And I did this trick. I asked him the question back again. I said, what do you think of this? So he asked me his question, whatever the question was. I asked him back. I was like, what do you think of this? And then, man, the guy was jammed. He couldn't say a word. He just sat down. And then I just cut that uh, part of the question because I didn't know what to tell him. So I started this, given uh, experience, uh, examples uh, from the, you know, oh, my my motto, my speech was always special operation, special operation. Uh, you know, of course, the special operation is special. And so it was a big deal among the Terps too, you know. Uh, you, uh, you know, I'm sure, Marcus, you remember uh, in the bases, if, you're an operator, uh, everybody will respect you and everybody looks at you like, okay, man, he, he is not like uh, you're, uh, what was it, like a gang, but they look at you like uh, as a role model, uh, like, okay, these are tough guys, these are cool guys. And for me, it was like, I want to be part of that cool guy and tough guy thing. And uh, so for the Turks was the same thing. So if you were working with the special operation, yeah. you could flex on the other Turks. Like, man, oh, we we working with these, you know, badass mofos out here, you know, kicking doors, <laughs> going out there, smoking this, you know, bad guys during these you know, missions and stuff. And one of the biggest flex was like, you could carry a gun if you're working with the special operation. So <clears throat> anyway, story. Shit, man, we down. armed ours up big time. I don't even have them in their room. Uh, last yeah, last exactly. deployment, they were so good. Yeah, one of our guys, he had 2,000 combat operations. We actually had a ceremony and pinned him with a trident. We made him a seal. The, 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 that's something he, he, nobody can understand it, but as a, a guy who come in as a local and then you get to that point that, you know, this brotherhood, uh, uh applaud you and uh, praise you like that but something that feeling is like you know it's, a, it's like the greatest feeling you can't really explain it uh, to man they were people. hardest dudes hardest dudes uh, yeah. i mean we would like that stack them down with stuff never said one word <laughs> never complained about anything first one over the wall with us last one out they were badasses man i mean and it was a we're talking about this is this isn't reminding this is a, a, a hardest freaking deployment i ever had to go on man and every team guy in there showed up and we pinned that sucker i've never seen that happen before or since man but he deserved it for sure yeah how, yeah. how long were you uh, yeah what was your total duration of time from the time you signed yeah. up at 16 till what uh so but when i started with the u uh u.s uh well the question was uh uh, uh, you know how how long I did it if I'm not uh, yeah yeah uh, what was the question yeah so I you know back it was just one year and you know with that with the Canadian SF and now I started with the 
uh, with the American SF. Uh, the that story is it's a long story, you know, uh, how I end up getting. Uh, so I I got lucky. I got assignment with the uh, ODS seven group uh, in Kabul, which was pretty rare. Like you wouldn't get assignments with the regular army in the Kabul, uh, and man, you get so lucky that you get assignment of the special operation. In Kabul City, it means you get to go home. I wasn't really a home type of guy because I wasn't married. I was single. And I was like, you know, this is my home. Uh, I love what I do. And then, you know, I would just visit home like every once in a month when I was in Kabul. And so my first uh, assignment in the U.S. was with the ODS 7 group. And uh, we were uh, stationed in Camp Moorhead, which was in uh, Kabul, uh, I don't know, was it south side of, north side of Kabul city? It was behind the uh, Darlamont Palace, that, you know, the old palace where the former president was executed by the Russian Spitsnaz. And so there was this massive base called Camp Moorhead, like all special operation, uh, Afghan commandos. Uh, and then uh, we were there for three months. And then from there, we moved to Bagram. Uh, we were in Camp uh, Alpha for uh, four months. And then, you know, Camp Alpha was like that top tier team. You know, you got Dev Guru, you got yeah, CAG, yeah. you got, you know, so you got that top notch uh, people uh, there. And I, I did it four months there. And then they, the team went home and they didn't have any spot available. So I said, man, they asked me if I wanted to work with a uh, army captain. And I said, man, no. But I mean, I'm not, as I told you guys, not good with the rules, especially background was very, very restricted yeah. because it was a massive base. It was like, you know, the central headquarter for the U.S. Uh, forces. That's huge. And now. Then... Yeah, they built that thing up big time and we're all flying there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The ba background was uh, background was pretty. I mean, background was uh, uh, if you if you would drive uh, past background, that city, which was called Charakar which was like, you know, like uh, two hours away from background uh, in the Afghan roads, maybe in the U.S. roads, it would be a little closer. Uh, you could see background from that city and you could see that's not Afghanistan. We, uh, people outside called it the uh, a small USA because of, you know, how things were built in background. And you could see that these bright lights uh, from like miles and miles oh, yeah. away and the rest of the areas all, uh, uh, you know, uh, like, a, you know, that black hole, like dark, you can't see anything, but you could see that shine coming out of that place. And of course, there were a lot of assumptions, like, you know, they do this in background, they do that in background. Uh, like, uh, what I mean with this assumption is like, uh, they have uh, nightclubs in background. I, I mean, I, uh, I never, I'm not a nightclub or disco drinking type of guy, but uh, they said they have these, they have that. So people uh, from outside had a lot of these assumptions. And when Chinooks were background, you know, of course, uh, had a lot of planes landing and taking off, especially CH-47, the Chinooks. Yeah. And they're like, man, they're bringing money, bags of money in these Chinooks. And they're dropping off this money here. And a lot of assumptions, they, the people who were outside were talking they have this under, uh, you know, underground uh, nu nuclear basement in background, mirror base, you know, that local stuff. I can People assure you that we didn't have a disco. <laughs> yeah. I looked for it. There's yeah, a couple, no. couple of those sweet deals that, yeah, we, we, they may be there now, but they damn sure <laughs> yeah, weren't yeah. there 
the coolest thing we had was that Burger King. <laughs> but I mean, yeah. granted, now it's full, and I mean, it's a it's a, there's a mall there and all kinds of stuff. It's it looks like Vegas for any for anybody listening to this. If you don't, if you kind of put it in your head, imagine flying into Vegas at night. It's kind of what it looks like. So, did you finally get the good food when you were with the Americans? Oh yeah, that, that's uh, the food is the part I always love uh, till uh, till today. Like even nowadays, if I go somewhere and you know my friend they don't want to eat, I'm like, man, I get pissed if you don't feed me. Either <laughs> let's go to a restaurant, uh, you know. But just my thing, like that's you know, the first thing I, that pisses me off is the food thing. If we don't have good food. <laughs> I, I'm the same way, bro. I'm like, hey man, as long yeah. as you feed me, I'll do whatever you want. Exactly. I'll fight exactly. as hard as you want. Just give me some good food. And not that damn mermite tub freaking. I mean, we had that. Don't get me wrong. But I, yeah, something decent. Where well, your stomach's and not like, what in the hell is that? Boot leather? So from from there, you know, so contract was done. And then the, the supervisor was pretty, the site manager uh, for the Terps. He was surprised when I declined the offer to work in background close to home. And I was like, man, I'm, I'm going back to Kandahar. And he's like, you crazy? I was like, no, I'm not crazy. I just, you know, uh, so I, uh, you know, I, I forgot to tell you guys the part that I got blown up uh, when I was working with the Canadians. Uh, we hit a roadside bomb with the IED and uh, it caused me this uh, brain injury. And, well, like, I got this shock and then uh, till now, uh, now I have this uh, I don't know if it's called PTSD or TBI, uh, the exact uh, the medical term for it. So my brain stops working and uh, like it blacks out and it's brain seizure. And I took medication for it uh, uh, till today. And the doctor told me there's no cure for it. So you, uh, as long as you're 11, you have to take this medication, which I'm happy with it right now. That medication is controlling it. And so I got blown up back then when I was with the Canadian. Unfortunately, we lost two soldiers, a very, very young soldier. And it was pretty bad. There was a secondary device. So we uh, drove over this ID. We were driving in this LAV, uh, LAV, which was this Canadian armored uh, vehicles. And then the ID hit and was my first experience, uh, which is a very bad experience. Uh, and uh, people who uh, gone through that, uh, like nobody will understand it. That's like you just go see Angel of Death for a second. He looks at your eye, and then you come back. Uh, you're that close to death, and death is something that I was never afraid of. Uh, it was more of like you lose your hand, you, you lose your leg, especially in a country like Afghanistan. They won't give you a job. Uh, they won't uh, let you work as a Terp no more, of course. Uh, then, man, the support was bad. We didn't have uh, insurance, uh, nothing at all that helps you cover you. So that was the main concern that I have. Like, I don't want to be the guy with no legs that won't be able to do anything. And this is my right. That was my dream job. Uh, and I didn't want anything to happen to it. So that brain injury, you know, happened to me and from that explosion. So, and I told this guy, and I wanted to stay in the fight so I don't get that PTSD. Like, you know, when you go out of it, yeah. then you're like, man, this world doesn't seem like I'm not, I'm not fitting in this uh, society. Like it's different. You can't tell these stories. You can't tell, like right now I'm talking to Marcus. Uh, it's like, I have this, feeling my soul is way, way back in one of these bases and i'm thinking like i'm back in that one of these bases we were sitting in front of the talk and 
in this uh, next to the fire pit, uh, fire pit and talking. Because you, you can't talk to people, you can't tell these stories to people. Uh, they will have different assumptions, especially with the, as I said, uh, some some part of the society is getting very, very soft, which is unfortunate. And if you tell them, they will, you know, name you bad things. They think you're a baby killer or stuff like that, uh, which they don't understand. I, I, don't, I, I don't expect them to understand uh, because that was something that they could never experience and some might not even make it uh, through that experience. So, but the best thing would be just, you know, to avoid it and not to talk to them. And so I wanted to stay in that fight so I can have that. I, I'm a guy, I want to, I love to talk because of, you know, share these stories, but you can, of course, share with the civilians uh, they, as I said, they don't understand it. So I stayed in the fight, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to go back to Kandahar and stay in the fight so I can have that. I don't want to get that PTSD like, man, I, I I, don't feel I'm in the society. So I went back to Kandahar, and then this was the funny part for me. Uh, I went back to that company. They didn't do the interview. They're like, are you good? You're, you're a part of the company. And I said, man, I'm telling you, give me your uh, assignment with a special operation. If there is no special operation, you know, don't assign me with any other unit. And then, you know, these two bearded guy came in with the lowest civilian clothing uh, in this room. And they're like, uh, hey, man, these guys are hiring for a special operation. I was like, shit. Let's jump in. Let's get into that line that five, six people were standing in the line because a lot of people are scared of working with special operation because of the risk that they were taking the operations there, the raids or the operations they were doing. And a lot of people didn't want to do it. Uh, and so I stood in that line and, you know, I got to get in as the last guy. And so this was one of the things I told them in the, during that whole interview. I told them, Assign me wherever you want to assign me. Send me to whatever base you want to send me. Give me good food. Give me good gym. Man, don't matter where you want to send me. And they started laughing. They're like, you're, you're the craziest person we ever seen. Like, you're, you're just dying for food. That's like, we're fighting for food. Like, everybody's fighting to survive, right? So why not uh, have a good meal before you die? <laughs> and they just laughed. I laughed. And then... Uh, they told me, okay, we we know a good place for you. And so I was, in my head when they said that we uh, have a good place yeah, for you, I was thinking Kandahar Airfield had a base which, which was called Camp uh, Simon, which was a base that the, uh, third, the commando battalion, well, Afghan commando battalion was there. And then you had ODA, sometimes rotations were different. You had SEALs uh, training and advising and doing operations with these guys. It was a good base, nice. You know, you're in Kandahar, you're in a cool base. You can flex on these army terps, uh, you know, but the, but, hey, man, I'm looking, we're working with a special operation here. You could go to CAP. So, you know, the, all that flex thing was in my head. So, you know, assignment, they came in, they took me to Kandahar at the airfield itself, and we were waiting in this line for uh, to, to go to the base. This is my first time ever I have seen a Navy SEAL. And uh, because of the uh, uniform pattern uh, was different. And back then, not a lot of uh, special operation had that, you know, cry precision knee pad, uh, you know, generation, whatever it's called, like looking cool and badass uniforms. 
and you had these cut helmets, suppressed weapons. I was like, shit, man, that fucking looked badass. I mean, it did, right? Uh, it does. We do. <laughs> yeah, we do, man. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was, I mean, I, it was like you were you were staring at love of your life for a couple of minutes. That was the same thing for me. <laughs> like, man, yeah, that looks badass. And, you know, uh, when you're in that environment, first thing for this is probably in a lot of special operation units always look look cool that was one of the biggest things that's it no look no matter what you do make sure you look cool man even when you're dying even if you're asleep you better look cool when you're asleep exactly right there we go yeah you're one of us (laughs) and you know so i even uh, i got into this uh chinook or ch47 and then you started flying i was like okay Look like I'm not assigned in this area. Let's see where we're going. So we had three stops on the way. And then uh, I got to this HLZ that when we were landing, uh, that dust came off. I still have the videos and everything. That dust came off, like that storm of dust because of, you know, the the, uh, the CH-47 was blowing it off the ground. And I said, hopefully I'm not in this base, man. Look like it's in the middle of nowhere. And they, uh, the ear crew look at me is like, this is where you're going to get off. I'm like, oh, shit. Look like we're going back to the bad place again. But, you know, let's see. Hopefully, I, my only concern was like, I hope they have good food. That was the only concern I have. Yeah, that was so a deal breaker. <laughs> so I got off the, I got off the Chinook. We were three people. It was me. Katu, uh, a uh, Terp that he came in from US. He was a US citizen. And there's another Terp that he was like new, new, like he never done anything uh, in combat or as a Terp. Uh, so we started walking, and then this bearded guy with all dust and everything on his face coming. And Tarjuman, Tarjuman means a Terp in our language. And he looks at me and he looks at three of us, and he's like, Tarjuman. Turp, turp. I was like, yeah. He, he he started screaming. He's like, oh shit, we got a turp, we got a turp. And I said, shit, man, what kind of base is this? They're like, they look like nobody want to come and work here. So we started walking, and then so this one guy, he must he mistook me. He mistook me. Uh, he thought I'm an uh, American citizen, like Afghan American, and which were called catches. They had like clearance. And so he started showing me the talk. He started showing me the rooms and everything. And that cat who Terp is right next to me. He's walking with us. And he's like, don't tell these Terps, you know, all these spots is just only for you. And so I I understood at the time that, okay, shit. He thought, he's thinking that I'm a cat who Terp. I came in from US, but he didn't know. Uh, I'm just, you know, a local Terp coming from uh, part of the uh, one part of the country. And so... He took me all these places, and then he's like, where do you live back in the state? I was like, oh, I don't live back in the state. And my English was a little better back then, I think. You know, I was watching a lot of movies, learning from the movies. Then I was practicing it with the soldiers. That's why I talk a lot, because I was I learned English from talking a lot, and I got this uh, you know, habit of talking. And then uh, he's like, you speak good English. Are you not from US? I was like, man, nah, I'm not. I'm just, you know, a local guy from, you know, from one side of the country. He's like, who's the cat? I was like, oh, probably this guy behind me. And he, the cat guy was pissed because he felt like uh, that, you know, he, he was feeling that, you know, they, uh, they should have given him more credit because he's an American citizen. And he's, uh, the, those trips were uh, looking down on us 
even though we were all Afghan, but they, there was this look that I never liked it, that they were looking down on us because we were local and they were from U.S. Uh, but on the other side, you had the special operation guys who were born in U.S., uh, they're active duty uh, and they always look up on you. They're like, yeah, man, you guys are the best. You guys, you know, they always uh, praise you for your work and that gives you motivation. And so that character guy was like, oh shit, you know. Uh, so he wasn't happy anyway about that whole thing. So I went into the room and then, you know, the whole journey with the SEALs started. It was uh, SEAL Team 4, uh, which I still am in contact with uh, some of the guys. I don't know, you might know, Marcus might know him, Jeff, uh, he's in Alaska, he's got Jeff uh, Frozen Trident, Oh yeah. Uh, Jeff Reed, yeah, uh, yeah. so he, he's, he's my uh, like old buddy like from back then, and he helped me a lot, you know, um, if he's hearing this podcast, he helped me a lot, uh, even when I came to US, he helped me a lot, and I always appreciate it, and he was one of the guys we always shared a lot of stories uh, when we were doing missions on top of these mountains uh, we were almost at times together and uh, so it was my first experience with the seals it was a good experience and then you know it went on and went on you got a book coming out yeah it's called uh, 5000 days of war which is my 14 years uh, in the combat and that equals like to 5000 and uh, i mean that like there are, there are more more details uh, in that book, of course. Oh yeah, you can't. Well, man, you've had an incredible it. story. Mm-hmm. You've had a great run on it, and thank. I mean, we we won't be able to thank you enough. This country owes you a, gr- uh, a great debt, man, for stepping up and doing that. Not only that, going back in and then volunteering to work with our with our soft units. I mean, if and I, I I want nothing but the best for you, man. I hope this book takes off. If how do people find you? How do we follow you? I mean, how, how, how do I put this out to where people can get a chance to get a hold of, the, of your book? So the book is, uh, the website that we have is Ballast uh, Books. Uh, I'm sorry if I'm mistaken. It's like, uh, so the easy way to get to that book is, I do have an Instagram account, which a lot of people don't personally know me. It's the Instagram account. It's called Task Force Black or TF Black. And uh, the, the book's also linked in that the account, and it's also in the. Uh, they can also go to uh, this website, which is for ba- uh, ballastbooks.com, and they can get a, if they pre order, they get a signed copy. We try to do it uh, through our website uh, so we can uh, deal with the stuff uh, ourselves uh, and instead of uh, using Amazon or uh, the other. You know, retail uh, sites because it gets a little complicated with them. And for us, you know, it's easier to use this, uh, you know, the website that's for the book. And they can use, they, they, I'm sure a lot of people, like every, almost everybody has this Instagram. They can go to TF Black or they can go to ba- Ballast Books on Instagram. They can get the link and they can pre order if they want a signed copy of the book, they can pre order it. And so my, you know, thank you so much for giving me this chance to talk because uh, to, you know, spread this message, uh, this message for me, the book is, uh, why is it important? It's for people to know what really happened back in Afghanistan. Uh, 
from like you know the beginning so that they can have a better knowledge of uh, you know what really was going on in that war in the country uh, what could have been done that, that could have been better especially that pull out uh, that uh, that mess that happened at the end uh, I mean uh, there's much details on it uh, because we were there when the fall happened we uh, I was there during the you know evacu- before the evacuation during the evacuation till you know that the moment we lost uh, those 13, 13 US service members yeah, at the end there. Uh, made their uh, you know souls rest in peace uh, I mean uh, there are like much more uh, details and information why the fall happened what was the one of the main reasons because you have the unfortunately you have the media in the US uh, or in the West that doesn't cover details and it's more of uh, I call them the snowflake media uh, as you know Trump always says uh, fake uh, news uh, well, I mean I like him for that word fake news because they don't want you to hear what you want to hear they give you what they want what they want you to hear so they always give you the information that uh, you don't need it but they sell you this uh, wrong information and so it's important that this book gets out and people understand the sacrifice that all these soldiers, not the Afghans, these coalition forces, the soldiers, a lot of soldiers, I've seen a lot of soldiers uh, in front of my eyes. Unfortunately, they lost their lives. And uh, man, that 20 years of fight, uh, I mean, those lives, they, those lives didn't came easy. So uh, let's not forget them their sacrifice they weren't there for politician and political reasons those soldiers were out there to help uh, bring freedom Uh, on the top whatever politician was going on it's something on the politics but uh, let's praise those soldiers that they were fighting to bring peace and stability to the country uh, which was which was very uh, good Uh, i mean i i saw a lot of changes in the country when the u.s uh, was in the country uh, and uh, I mean, I mean, I hope people, especially people in the West, don't forget uh, the sacrifice that the uh, U.S. and other countries made. Uh, but then, uh, unfortunately, it went down the drain at the end uh, because of the mess that happened. Uh, but, I, you know, the, I hope people uh, not forget that. Thank you for sharing your story. We could listen to you all day. Unfortunately, we're on a time constraint. But yeah, brother, this we're is forever amazing. in your debt, man. I can't thank you enough. I look forward to meeting you face to face. We're going to do everything we can to push the book for you. God bless you, man, and continue in your success. Keep going forward, man. Keep keep pushing. The, everything, the sky's the limit, man. Thank you so much, uh, Marcus. I don't want to forget this. I want to tell you this. Uh, the task force I was working at the end, the... Uh, uh, they were guys in that task force, Afghans, that they were in that uh, search and rescue operation uh, after the uh, you know Operation Red Wings. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, but I I still am uh, in contact with those guys. Uh, they live here in U.S. They are safe, and that was a task force. And I always wanted to, you know, tell you this, but you know, of course, we had never got the chance. But just wanted to share this information. Or that you know, there were people always cared about you, and I mean, I'm 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 very proud. I'm uh, to be honest, I'm very proud uh, that uh, you know I'm talking to you, and I love you know your story and everything. Uh, man, you guys are a hero, no matter what. Oh hell, man, you're all the ones that brought me back. I'll never forget that either. It's a mutually exclusive family now. 
It is, brother. It is. Long live the brotherhood. And thanks so much for your time. And, uh, you bet, bro. You need anything, man. We're here for you. You understand? Thanks so much. Sir. All right, I Yusuf. God bless thanks you, man. So Bye. Thank you. Take care. Bye.